You have one unheard message. Hi, I was calling Current, the influencer marketing platform, but I think I just got redirected to a bunch of people listening to a podcast. Well, anyways, I was calling Current because I was told they could help get my brand set up on TikTok Shop and even build out an affiliate program of content creators promoting my brand and even have those content creators go on live streams and promote my product there. Wow, I could really use Current. I also heard that the brands they work with are making millions in sales. I guess I'll just go to their website at current.tech. These days, work is in trouble. We've outsourced most of our manufacturing to other countries. And with that, we sent away good jobs and our capability to make things. American Giant is a clothing company that's pushing back against this tide. They make all kinds of high-quality clothing and activewear, like sweatshirts, jeans, dresses, jackets, and so much more, right here in the USA. So when you buy American Giant, you create jobs in towns and cities across the country. And jobs bring pride. Purpose. They stitch people together. If all that sounds good to you, visit American-Giant.com and get 20% off your first order when you use code STAPLE20 at checkout. That's 20% off your first order at American-Giant.com with promo code STAPLE20. What starts, what starts here changes the world. Well, I've got to admit, I kind of like it. What starts here changes the world. We are the music makers, and we are the dreamers of dreams. The average American will meet 10,000 people in their lifetime. I was handcuffed to another man from another tribe whose language I did not speak. Don't think, don't think. But if every one of you changed the lives of just 10 people, and each one of those people changed the lives of another 10 people, and another 10, we did not know each other. And we could not speak to each other because if we could have spoken to each other, we might have been able to figure out what was happening to them. To every politician who is taking donations from the NRA, it is because America has not invested in its people. Shame on you. And you can change the entire population of the world, 8 billion people. And if we could have figured out what was happening to us, we might have been able to prevent it. If you think it's hard to change the lives of 10 people, change their lives forever, well, it didn't happen. Here we are. You're wrong. Are you better off than you were four years ago? My fellow Americans, it's time to speak out. They're looking for help. They're looking for help. They're not looking for more of the same. When people lose their jobs, there's a good chance I'll know them by their name. When a factory closes, I know the people who ran it. When the businesses go bankrupt, I know them. We will respond with that timeless creed that sums up the spirit of the people. Yes, we can. Yes, we can. Yes, we can. And when we get enough money, honey, we'll bring you down. But their children were saved. Children's children. Generations were saved by one decision, one person. But changing the world can happen anywhere, and anyone can do it. So what starts here can indeed change the world. But the question is, what will the world look like after you change it? Welcome to Public Access America. Make a stand. I know I did. Thank you very much, and may God bless America. Thank you all. We have an embarrassment of riches of, of wonderful presentations and wonderful ideas. Uh, so we are going to have, as you see, we're setting up microphones on either side. And so if you have a question uh, for one or more of the panelists, please come to the microphone and, uh, and we, can, we can get started.
Um, so please make your way to the microphones if you have a question. Maybe as you do, I will, uh, I will ask a first question. That, that is to all of you. And that is a question about uh, thinking about this problem and separating it into big races and big donors versus everything else. So we know a lot of the money, most of the money is happening in these big elections. We know in those elections, there's a lot of parity. Generally, there's parity uh, in terms of money coming on the Democratic side and the Republican side. Um, we also know that in, uh, in the big races is where some of the, the, the big, famous Koch brother type donors are, are activated. But what worries people a lot, I think, is, is what happens in little races, both because in little races where there's, as Ray said, not a lot of information, there might be more potential for um, a really one-sided um, one financial contribution that can tip things. And, um, and also in these little elections, there might be a lot more small actors, mom and pop shops that want to try to convince the electorate that, hey, you know, this regulation proposed by this candidate is bad for our businesses. And, and we, that has a slightly different flavor than kind of large scale corporate sponsorship of money. And so I wanted to know whether um, any of your views are kind of adjusted or dependent, or what, what kind of adjustments we have in, in policy and law and political science for, for thinking about small scale versus large scale. I, th I think there's an enormous difference between the marquee races, the, the Obama-Romney race, uh, and uh, local races for, let's say, retention of judges or the county, county council. Uh, and, and, and Ray flagged this as well. I, I think um, the, the amount of money that is spent in a presidential race, first of all, is, is, is significant. But it parallels the press coverage and the so-called free media so that when people choose to go to the polls or not, um, you, you would have to truly have slept through an election cycle not to know there was a presidential election, not to know the candidates, and not to have some opinion of them. That is absolutely the opposite of what you're going to find in races down the ballot where you go in and you think, gosh, I didn't even know that was happening this year. I didn't realize this was the cycle for whatever that position is. Uh, I've never heard of any of these judges I'm being asked whether to retain or not. Uh, so I agree that I think there is a dearth of, I'm not sure if it's spending, but certainly a dearth of information because it's hard to break through the noise level uh, as well as not having the, the, the money to dominate the airwaves. Uh, you can't get through the press attention at a, at a smaller local level. And, and we're a democracy that has far more political activity than many other democracies do. There are countries that go to the polls once every five years. They elect their local member of parliament and the, maybe the mayor. And then parliament elects the prime minister. You're you know, In a parliamentary system, you're just voting for one party. But it's really simple. Here, we do voting all the time. We have on-year and off-year elections. We have the peculiarities of odd-year elections. Uh, we have local elections on different dates than national elections. Uh, it makes it very hard to break through. Yeah, I'd say there are three ways in, in which it's true. So one, um, as Trevor mentioned, it's judicial elections and local elections. Often they're also nonpartisan elections, so they don't have the important heuristics that voters often need to sort, which is the D or R, Democrat or Republican. So that makes it even more uh, troubling. Um, Second is um, primaries, where also voters are not guided by heuristic, and so um, and it's very low turnout. So money is more important uh, in those elections in terms of moving turnout and things like that. So that matters quite a bit. 
And the other place I'll just say small scale versus large scale, and this just really goes to some of the things. I think there's an emerging consensus among law professors that the, the, the full scale um, transparency for donors of to above $200 is not necessary. The, 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 the money that you want to be able to trace is the big money. Um, and that the only people who use the, the voter databases that tell you for people with small amounts of money are their neighbors. There are students, I see some of my students in the room, like all my students know who donated where um, on their faculty. So it, that's not a actually, as, as, as interesting as that might seem, that is not a helpful heuristic. What you, what you need to know is where the big money goes. Um, and so I, there's lots of ways in which thinking about small and large is, is very helpful in this debate. I think the answer, I mean, I'm, I'll pass. That was answered very well by both of you. I just want to add one. I mean, I, I agree that certainly the, the there is a difference between small and large donors in, in lots of respects. On the other hand, I, if to the extent that we're talking about constitutional issues or speech issues, I'm not sure that the because you're spending a lot of money, all of a sudden you have less of a claim to any particular right than than you did than you did if you're if you're spending less money. On the other hand, you you could make the argument that the concerns you might have about the speech. Are, are more significant the, the greater you know the amount of money that's spent. But if you look at some some ballot measures that we've seen in, in this year, um, you know, corporations and, and other interests spent millions of dollars um, in, in, in these in, in these elections and they lost. Um, so the concern that that except the ones they won, except the ones they won, but they but they do lose. So the the notion that corporations are just going to come in in these local elections um, and spend. Uh, and spend millions of dollars and, and, and get their way, just, it just isn't, just isn't the case. Um, certainly, you know, nobody's going to argue that money doesn't help um, get a message across. Uh, but especially in a local election, uh, there are going to be plenty of opportunities for, for citizen groups and others to, to get together and get their message and get their message out. But this is where, this is just one place, the people who mostly don't read political science are incumbents. So the one thing that, that you really notice whenever you talk to these guys is you tell them like the odds of you not being elected next year are the odds of being you know, dismissed from the Politburo. Very, very low likelihood. They are terrified and, and you can tell them, look, lots of people, even when a big corporate interest goes up against them with a big war chest, they don't need a war chest that big. They're incumbents, they're gonna do just fine. They don't believe that either. So part of it is, is not the, the question of what actually happens on election day. Part of it is what they think is gonna happen and they don't read you guys enough. If they did, they'd be calmer about it and I think less likely <laughs> think so. to react in the way that they do. Okay, I've got some questions here. Should we go right here? Yes, hi. Uh, thank you for coming here. It's very enlightening. Uh, I work with a group of students, some at Yale and, and some at Harvard, Columbia, and other colleges on this and uh, campaign finance issues. And uh, we have somewhat come to the conclusion that, uh, that any chance of, of Congress passing any kind of significant legislation in this area is remote uh, because of what everything, what you all know, polarization, et cetera, and gridlock, um, and that perhaps focus more should be um, on the agencies that are regulating and enforcing existing laws, such as the IRS right now in the 501c4 uh, issue. And the IRS does have the power, I believe, to um, to to create significant regulations that would require disclosure. So my question to you is, 
why should we not, why shouldn't we focus on the IRS? Why shouldn't people like you and also citizens um, um, make their opinions known uh, and try to influence these agencies to pass uh, uh, enforceable regulations? I mean, I, I think it's good to focus on the enforcement agencies, some of which are not doing a great job. But I really worry about the IRS being involved in any of this, to be frank. I mean, it's, uh, it, it's, it seems like it's coming to their lap, but they are not competent to deal with political issues, in my opinion. It's hurting their, it's really hurting. Whatever you think about what happened with the scandal, whatever, it's hurting their reputation. And I'd like to see that go back to its proper place at the Federal Election Commission. That's, that's my But they are that. involved. So. Right, but I don't think we should promote the IRS as being a major enforcer of, of money in politics. Uh, the lawyers might have a different view on this, but. No, I mean, I, I don't disagree at all. The IRS is not set up to deal with this. The 501c4s and all of these nonprofits were never thought of in a million years as being political actors. They're nonprofits under the tax code with this tax status, political activity was over at the FEC or at the, the state level. But as I explained, what's happened is that you know clever people who are looking for ways through the system have said that's an advantage. We'll avoid the FEC and the state agencies, and we'll fire at the IRS because they don't pay attention to this stuff. So then the IRS gets put in a position where it's happening on their watch. They have a law that, that the law actually says for C4s um, that your sole purpose has to be social welfare, and you may not engage in political activity. But the IRS decided in the 50s that that was a little draconian, and if you just did a little political stuff, you shouldn't lose your tax exemption for a C4. So they said your primary purpose has to be social welfare. So now we argue over what is primary purpose, uh, what counts as an election expenditure, all the rest of it. I, I mean, I don't know how to get it out of the IRS except to say, if you engage in any political activity, you have to report to the FEC. The problem there is that then you have to deal with your question, which is, so what do you do about an agency that was set up to require a majority to do anything? Four votes to take any action, and functionally, three Democrats, three Republicans. For a long time, when I was there, I think we had one deadlock in the five years I was there. Uh, that was, I can basically say, by accident. Um, now, most major matters are deadlock 3-3, not necessarily because it's a Republican versus Democratic issue in terms of who gets fined, but on the philosophy of whether there ought to be disclosure, uh, whether the law should require disclosure of the, the sorts of things McCain-Feingold says, uh, how far the, the reach of the FEC should go. And those are difficult issues. But when an agency is splitting 3-3 and, and literally unable to act legally, it's then sort of tough to say, well, take it out of the IRS and give it to the FEC because it won't be done there exactly. either. Exactly. Thank you for your question. Does anyone else want to comment on that? OK. So thank you so much for the excellent discussion so far. Um, I have a very simple question. Uh, I'm curious, what happened to the Republican Party in the 10 years after McCain-Feingold? Why did they change their position on disclosure? <laughs> I think Trevor, you might be the only Republican up here, but... Um. All right. Um, you know, it's, it's an example, I think, of practical politics. First of all, the party hasn't officially changed its position. 
uh, on disclosure. It, it, it was against, the majority of the party was against McCain-Feingold in the first place. Uh, and uh, though it was bipartisan in name and fact, the majority of Republicans in both houses uh, voted against it. And the party then sued, uh, and Bush signed it basically with a gun to his head. So th that law was, was seen as, as um, hurting Republicans. I'm not at all convinced it did, but what it led to was a world where, particularly post-Citizens United, um, you had much larger expenditures by these so-called outside groups than ever before. You had a liberation of corporations and uh, uh, chambers of commerce and, and other groups, but they had the concern, which has been noted on this panel, which is the shareholders may not like it. Uh, our customers may not like it. Our employees are both Republicans and Democrats. They may not like it. So there was, for the first time, sort of the opposite of what Justice Kennedy thought, which is we're going to have corporate spending, but it's going to be fully disclosed. We had the legal ability to spend money for out of corporations, but a reputational risk to them if it was, in fact, disclosed. And you had these vehicles. You have the C4s, the C6s, where the money could be spent and not disclosed. So I think what's happened is that the corporate money has ended up disproportionately in vehicles that don't disclose. So from a Republican Party perspective, you're saying, we're, we're finally able to compete with labor unions, which always spent a lot of money on turning out their own members. And corporations didn't have members they could turn out. Uh, now we're allowed to spend it, but if we have disclosure, and the Chamber of Commerce has been very frank about it, if, we, if you require disclosure, we won't be able to raise the money to spend to elect a Republican Senate, is what they said back in 2010 when the debate was about Citizens United and requiring the Disclose Act. So I, I think it's become practical politics. Uh, a, at the moment, the perception is uh, and, and this is borne out in the numbers I've seen in this last election. Uh, the spending was about even amongst the outside groups between Republicans and Democrats, but it was very uneven in terms of who was disclosing and who not. The Democratic groups tended to be super PACs that disclosed. The Republican spending tended to lean into the non-disclosing C4s, C6s. So I think what's happened is that it, it, you know, all politics is local. This is not an abstract debate. It becomes very difficult to talk about it when the perception is one party will be hurt or benefited by uh, requiring disclosure we don't have practically at the moment. It's also just a sign of how much the law has dramatically shifted in the last few years in a deregulatory fashion. So the reason why it was kind of a gimme to say disclosure and disclaimer, because that's not where the fight was. I mean, the law was much more uh, on the regulatory side. And so if you were going to put your shoulder to the wheel, you'd fight about these other issues. Now, I mean, disclosure and disclaimer are pretty, I mean, since I'm now teaching election law. I thought about only teaching disclosures and disclaimers, because as far as I can tell, they may be the only thing that's constitutional anymore. Um, so, so that's that's where the shift has gone. And so unsurprisingly, politics have followed uh, where the regulatory side is. So in Citizens United, um, Clarence Thomas voiced it like, very unpopular dissent, like the 1-8 dissent, that full disclosure could lead to like intimidation and coercion, and that could lead to like more undemocratic processes. And it seems like David, if I may call you David, um, has talked about 
when people see their neighbors not like um, you know contributing to campaigns, they it has like a discourages participation in like expressing their own speech through donating. And given that you know political scientists scientists have had a hard time proving corruption and like the the benefits of full disclosure being like there's a anti-corruption intent and there's a information intent and it seems that David has also I don't know if he did the research but there's been research that shows that on the margin full disclosure doesn't actually have this like benef beneficial effect of providing information to voters on the margin does that give any more weight to you know Clarence Thomas's argument that there is this coercion and that it could lead to more undemocratic processes I, I mean, I, I, I again, I, I, I do see lots of concerns about disclosure being used as a tool to attack um, rather than to um, educate. Uh, now, you could make the argument. Well, if this Scalia made, if you know, if you want to, if you want to have an opinion, you know, you should you should stand behind that opinion. Um, but on the other hand, uh, you know, if 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 you fear that you know you're going to be ostracized by your neighbors, maybe you don't you know want to want to you know make a stand a strong stand on, on a political issue if, you know if, if your social you know well being is, is more important to you or you know I, I'm trying not to, to focus too much on threats of violence and so on because I do think those are exceedingly rare. Um, but on the other hand, uh, we do need to be I think you know before we even get to cost, we need to ask you know are there actually benefits here? Um, and there is the, that's been the thing that I think there have been more assumptions about. I think even the supporters of disclosure have acknowledged that there could be potential costs, um, but they've been downplayed because the benefits are thought to be so great. Um, but, but I do think that there is a concern, especially in terms of targeting corporations. Now, I suspect a lot of people in this room are not feeling to feel bad for the corporations. They are being put upon because people are going to go after them. Um, but, but corporations need to be participating in the political process because Politicians want to regulate them. Right? It's not that corporations are you know, free to do whatever they want, and they're trying to somehow interject themselves into the political process. You know, a CEO that isn't aware of what's going on in politics is going to be in a whole lot of trouble. And so the notion that, that you're going to create a roadmap, essentially, for activists to target the corporation just seems to me to be sort of, sort of problematic. So I, think, I don't think Thomas is talking about corporations so much in his decision, but I think that is certainly an implication of um, of his uh, of his dissent. Okay, but now we just now need to talk about the First Amendment for just one minute. <laughs> okay. So um, I completely take the point about uh, 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 the way good governance groups tend to overestimate the benefits. I mean, they always it happens in every regulatory arena. They want the attention of policymakers. They promise more than they can deliver. Um, so, but on the cost side, this is where the rhetoric has just gotten completely overblown. So first of all, politics ain't beanbag. Um, uh, and and, and if, if there are real and genuine threats of violence, there is an exception that you can apply for, which groups do, um, if there's, there's a genuine threat. But, but consumer boycotts is not the kind of threat that the First Amendment recognizes. If you just remember back, you know, so right now the, the case that is being cited is a storied civil rights case where people were being lynched right, for their association with civil rights causes. That, during the civil rights movement, let's remember, consumer boycotts were a tool of the centers, right? They are a gloried and storied First Amendment tradition. And so it is true that corporations may get boycotted, but that is what the First Amendment contemplates that they will, what will happen. I mean, we've always boycotted store owners for what they said when they are racist. So, so I don't want to, um, on the cost side, there, the First Amendment does have, and our traditions do have something to say about those costs. And so 
everyone would agree violence, everyone agrees intimidation, but the rest of it, the, you know, it's not clear that the First Amendment, I mean, the First Amendment embodies a normative judgment about what costs are acceptable, and, and it cannot be, if consumer boycotts are a problem, then the First Amendment has been making a mistake for a century. I'm not saying the consumer boycotts are in any way sort of problematic from a First Amendment perspective, but the argument that corporations should have to facilitate consumer boycotts, that I sort of take, that, that I think is more problematic. Well, but, but Justice Kennedy says that, that it's important for us to know who the donor is and what the position is. So, I mean, how... That's a justice. I'm not... You know, Justice Kennedy can say what he likes. Yeah. I think he's wrong. Um, so, yeah. yeah. But, but why, should, why, should, why should it be invisible? If they want to spend the money and it's important in their corporate interest, let them say it and let their consumers tell them whether they think that's a good idea or not. Let me take a different approach to this discussion. I think it's a great discussion in the question. And, and a nice word for Justice Kennedy here. Um, <laughs> he clearly, I believe, he didn't envision what's happened in the only four years since Citizens United because there weren't super PACs when the Supreme Court issued Citizens United, which means they were talking about corporations speaking in their own names. And so they were assuming a form of political discourse, which is almost universally now not happening. If you go back to the Bilotti case I mentioned, uh, where the Supreme Court said it overturned a Massachusetts law that prohibited corporations from spending money in ballot initiatives. There was a ballot initiative. It was going to raise the corporate tax rate. The First National Bank of Boston said, we care about this issue. We ought to be able to discuss it. Uh, the Supreme Court agreed and said there's no danger of corruption here. You're directly implicated by this, so you can spend money on the ballot initiative. But they were going to spend money to talk about whether taxes should be raised in Massachusetts on them, on other corporations, what the business climate was. So they were going to, in, in my you know, ivory tower view of things, they were going to actually contribute to better inform voters by having a discussion about economic policy and whether it was a good thing to raise taxes or not. That's what we, I think, Justice Kennedy thought we were going to get out of Citizens United is corporations participating, and he assumed it would be directly and they'd be visible. So they talk about issues, politics, policies, how it affected them, what voters should do about tax issues or whatever else. But instead, we got this diversion to corporations giving to groups that did not disclose donors who do not, by and large, spend their money talking about the issues that actually affect the corporation. It isn't that you see a lot of direct discussions about tax policy. Instead, the money goes into a group which hires political consultants who say, our polling says the best issue is something else entirely, and it all gets spent on negative ads, and, and I, the only bone I would pick with, with uh, some of what Ray said is the idea that negative ads produce better educated voters. Uh, it depends on what the ad's about. If it's actually about a, you know, is our healthcare system better or worse under Obama, that may be a very useful discussion. But when it turns out to be, did somebody uh, pay their taxes 30 years ago? Did they vote three elections ago? Did they stop beating their spouse? Um, all the sorts of stuff that a lot of these negative ads turn out to be about. To me, the corporation's voice is not being heard. The issues they care about are not being discussed. Uh, and I, I think our political discourse is actually worsened, not better, by encouraging these sorts of negative ads 
And those statistics will show that the, it is more likely that the money will be used for negative ads if you don't have to say who it's coming from, because then you're not accountable. That is why you will see that candidates are more likely to run balanced ads, uh, but an outside group that uh, the studies now are showing has more credibility because you don't know who it is, so you think it's some sort of nonpartisan group, uh, is, is going to run more negative ads. Real quick, I mean, you make the distinction seem very simple, but it's not, I think it's not that simple who's representing the corporation. I'm actually not sympathetic to the corporation's plight, to be honest with you. But, <laughs> but, um, but I am, I, what I am concerned about is people, uh, average uh, participation. What I've noticed in some of my research is people who are cross-pressured, live in communities next to a Republican, they're a Democrat. Maybe their neighbor's their boss. Their boss finds out they gave money to a candidate or sign a petition. The boss can do it with one click, say, oh, I, Jane, what is she doing? Wow, she's really bizarre. I mean, those types of things are, have a chilling effect, and we still, we're still trying to find out. So, so what do you end up with? You end up with people who feel passionate, you know? So they're going to they're gonna give no matter what. But the people who are, we want to drop people in who are not connected to politics yet. And I'm afraid that some of this disclosure of small donors and, and petition signers is not the way to do that. Great, great question. Thank you. Thank you. Well, the gentleman before me stole a lot of my um, question. In listening to political scientists, I kept saying to myself, I love full disclosure. I would love to know who everybody is that's giving. But the concurrent thought in my head is risk. In every campaign and every administration that I can remember, I'm 58 years old, at some point somebody got targeted by the IRS. Whether or not you believe it started, where it started, there's a gentleman in Idaho, I think his name was Romer, gave a lot of money all of a sudden, sort of came out politically and gave a lot of money and he was raked through the coals by the IRS. Look at the district attorney in Milwaukee. I don't think, while it's not violent, I don't think any of those people that got a visit from the Wisconsin State Police in the middle of the night um, thought it was very funny. And I worry about the IRS. I worry about enthusiastic district attorneys. When you put your name out there, I mean, all, all my neighbors are great. I don't worry about my neighbors. They're all, they're all professors at Yale anyway, so why do I have to worry? <laughs> I worry about the one that runs the anatomy department at the medical school. But, <laughs> but you know, I don't worry about my neighbors. But what I would worry about if I had a quarter of a million dollars to drop on a, on a campaign tomorrow wouldn't be any of my neighbors. It might be it might be the attorney general in the state of Connecticut. It might be the district attorney for the county of New Haven. It might be somebody like that that just decided that they wanted to make my life hell. Yeah, I'll just say this. We've litigated now two of these cases, um, one involving disclosure, both the case involving Prop 8 disclosure and then the case involving um, a disclosure of people who signed. Petitions, and when you go into a court of law and actually have to produce evidence of these kinds of things, what you discover is that the kinds of things that people are experiencing, sometimes their neighbor knocks on their door and says, you know, I think we should talk about gay rights. Uh, and so that's uncomfortable, but that is not a, um, the kind of thing that I think we should be worried about. People lose their signs, sometimes their political signs on their lawn, but anyone who's been in politics and elections knows that happens pretty routinely. But so far, 
there's been no evidence. And if there is evidence of, of you know, a state official using these well, things in a What would you say to the people who got a visit from the Wisconsin State Police who were coordinating information for Walker? Who Chisholm decided to go after? I mean, what do you say to those I, people? Do you want to I, I actually, yeah, I, I mean, I, I ultimately, I think that, the, that if there was malfeasance there, I think it will eventually come out. Um, so when, when the, my, you know, the IRS is a little bit trickier um, because of the, the, the IRS scheme is a little bit trickier, but in terms of the Wisconsin case, I mean, I think that, that to the extent that there was malfeasance, it will eventually, you know, come out and that if, if elected officials or if, 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 if prosecutors are acting inappropriately, I have enough faith in the U.S. system of government that they're going to be held, held accountable. Um, so I, I'm, I'm more concerned about sort of the, 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 the fear that, the, again, as Ray said, the average citizen thinks that they're not going to be able to get involved, shouldn't get involved in the political process because now, um, you know, there are now these tools that the Sunlight Foundation has created that, you know, when you get an email, you can find out, like automatically figure out who this person who's sending you the email, who they've given to. It's like it's kind of a weird world we're living in now, where you know you, you judge your email by you know who people have given to which campaigns. That's the sort of thing I'm a little bit more concerned about than than prosecutorial abuse. I just don't think it's it's a it's a it's something that certainly I'm sure goes on, but it's I don't think it's this massive um, epidemic. Let me just add that I think that the the kind of the view and the fear that you're channeling is is consistent with Thomas's opinion and seems like an utterly minority opinion uh, in the world of campaign finance, but does bear on or seem to bear on um, larger concerns in the post-Snowden world and when we have Europe demanding a right to be forgotten and concerns as data is so much more available that we might 10, 15 years down the road have a changing view of, of all the information about us that is disclosed and the appropriate and inappropriate ways for us to be used. I don't know what that looks like in the near term or what it looks like related to campaign finance, but there's clearly this, this sentiment that you're expressing, I think, that that is a, a concern about just data out there and who's using it for what that we are only beginning to, to really figure out. I, I would agree that, that the world has changed significantly since the 74 law laid out the disclosure requirements and we haven't reacted to that in a policy sense. Uh, in 74, $200 uh, was a much larger sum than it is today. I haven't, I should have done, I haven't done the inflation math, but it's probably closer to eight or hundred or a thousand dollars. That was one thing. Secondly, when I got to the FEC in the 1990s, there was always a line at the front door because the ground floor had the file cabinets and the file cabinets had the reports. And that's how the press got the information. You had to go to the FEC and go through file cabinets to look and see who gave to people. Well, we're obviously in a radically different world where you can tell from an email what their history is. You can use an app to find out what your, you know, your neighbors have given. Uh, it is clearly time, if, if nothing else, to inflation adjust those numbers and probably to think about other systems. Um, Heather mentioned, and none of us have discussed, the Ackerman idea of being able to give in some sort of a uh, a black box. The concept is you can support the candidates you want and no one needs to know who you are if you put the money in a government-sponsored black box and it gives it to the candidate and it doesn't tell the candidate who it's from because it avoids 
the nexus with corruption, so there's not a governmental interest in requiring disclosure. That, that to me is, it may not be the only system you have, but it, it might be an intriguing way to, to incorporate it for people who are concerned about disclosure while still avoiding the, the corruption. Thank you for your question. I want to thank you all, first of all, for challenging everything I thought I knew about elections and the connection between transparency and disclosure and outcomes. Um, I do hear in uh, gentlemen on the, the end, you were connecting transparency with some issues of control. And uh, I'm not sure all values need to have uh, definite outcomes. That they have to be guaranteed outcomes. I think a value is there as a value. It's a goal. It's something we shoot for. Uh, what I wanted to ask you about was your views on public campaign finance, because I recently uh, had some correspondence with Jack Abramoff with the idea of bringing him to New Haven to speak on the issue of public campaign finance. We have actually have a democracy fund here in New Haven. It's an experiment in Connecticut. New Haven's the only town that's actually set it up. And even though Abramoff in his documentary is very clear that money generates corruption, he's absolutely, you don't need, you can stop all your research on that. Jack Abramoff will show up for, I don't know, $5,000 or whatever and, and tell you what he has learned. But, that's very uh, sporting of him. <laughs> yes, isn't it? But You're here for free. Yes. <laughs> he wouldn't go so far as to endorse public campaign finance. So I thought, what are the options? If disclosure doesn't work, if transparency is hit or miss, uh, if even convicted felons don't think public campaign finance is an option, when you dream in the privacy of your minds, what do you dream of that will work? What a question. That's a great question. It's a great, it's a, it's a, it's a great question. I guess the, my, my initial response is, and this is a typical professorial thing, is to come back with a question, which is, well, what's the problem we're trying to solve? And that's, in some sense, I think, tied in with the, the transparency debate. Um, is, is, is I've, always, I've been one, starting to wonder over the last few years, you know, what, why the focus on money? So if, if we're concerned that voters don't you know, need to make better decisions, um, you know, if Larry Lessig, who spent millions of dollars with his PAC trying to get, vote, get candidates elected who cared about campaign finance and failed miserably, if he had spent that money sending out voter guides, right, telling people in close races where their candidates stood on the issues, I would argue that that would have been a much better service to democracy um, for, uh, for, 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 for Lessig to, to, to undertake. Now, of course, he raised the money, not me, so he can do what he pleases with it. Um, but the idea that the problem is money and that we need to solve money and that we need to tell more pe people about who's spending money and why, um, I guess the question always comes back to what problem exactly are we, are we trying to solve? And, and we've talked about the informational rationale and the anti-corruption rationale, um, but there are arguments that, that transparency actually facilitates corruption. I'm not sure I buy them, but certainly those arguments are out there. Um, because it sort of builds on the on why Ackerman and Aries had sort of argued for keeping these things anonymous, um, which is that you don't want candidates to know who's giving to their campaigns. Um, so, so you know, I guess my 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 initial instinct is is I'm not I'm not sure because I'm not sure exactly what problem it is that reformers often want to solve. 
Um, so I'm sorry if that's a little, you know, wishy-washy, but I think that's sort of what I'm sort of puzzling with, and maybe the rest of must have a dream. <laughs> they want to solve a problem that they're not allowed to solve. So I think reformers <laughs> want to solve the distortion problem, the inequality problem, um, and the outsized influence that, that wealthy donors have as opposed to poor people. More people with one vote versus wealthy donors with one billion dollars. You know, the, the, the Sheldon Edelson primary, right? They want to solve that problem. They can't solve that problem. Why? Supreme Court told them equality is off the, off the table. So they're not allowed to talk about equality. So they have to move to corruption. And then the Supreme Court tells them, well, when we're talking about corruption, we're talking about something super narrow. OK, so now we have to move to a different portion. So the, I think that the clear-eyed reformer only thinks at best that what you get out of disclosure is enough transparency maybe to get the reform game going for the bigger, um, the big game that they really want to hunt. Um, but that's, you know, they have been moved over the last dec few decades into an argument that is so much weaker and so paltry by comparison. And they can't even tell you really that they want to hunt the big game, right? Because they can't tell you, look, we just really need to get a handle on where the money is going so that we can get some bigger reform because no big reform is allowed to be passed right now. So you're, you're asking them to do something in some ways that um, the Supreme Court has told them they're not allowed to do, which is why I think the, the, it has shifted so uh, dramatically. They're fighting over something that what, what's left to fight about. But that's not the, that is not the core issue. But the, I'm sorry, go ahead. Rick. Well, I, I mean, I was going to say, I, I wouldn't even have a, I mean, I have some public financing schemes, but I, if I were going to push something, I would on the equity issue. I'd say compulsory voting. You know, you know, make everybody vote. Get people to the polls. Um, it's the, the people who vote and don't vote. They they do have different opinions. Political scientists have been saying a long time they don't, but more and more they do have different opinions on issues, and uh, it's never going to happen. At least not. The next 20 years, I can't see it happening because even liberals say you can't make me vote. Um, it's just ingrained. But uh, I think that would deal with the money problem because you wouldn't have to mobilize as many voters. They have to show up for the polls. Um, politicians would have to appeal to those people. Now you might end up spending a lot more money on ads to appeal to those people. That's true. But um, it's going to change the terms of the debate when you're talking about a different audience, particularly in primaries too. Well, I, my back was rising as I heard the question addressed to or the conversation dealing with what reformers want. Um, I'm sometimes labeled a reformer, but I, I'm a citizen. We, everyone in this room is interested in what makes democracy work. So I don't think it's the reformer's job to try to fix the mess we're in. It is all of our jobs to fix the mess we're in. And the issue we're trying to address is how do you have a democracy where people get information about candidates and are able to vote, encouraged to vote? I mean, actually requiring people to vote seems to me like actually a pretty good idea. But the, the problem is how do we finance that? Um, and, and we are different than other countries. We're not a parliamentary democracy that changes things. We don't have a broadcast system which is owned by the government and provides free time as, as most of the European democracies do. So we have a unique set of problems, but it boils down to how are we going to get the money to enable candidates to communicate with voters and other people to speak about these issues without corruption? Whether that is public funding, free airtime, requiring people to vote, the, the basic still is we all want the same thing uh, in a way that is not corrupt, that is not selling uh, in my view, access, but if you're the Supreme Court, you say at least you know, not, not selling outcomes. Um, th those, are, th those are pretty fundamental questions. 
that we've been struggling with as a democracy really since politics moved from being local and people talking on um, soapboxes to requiring the expenditure of a large amount of money to communicate with a broader number of people. And that's what, about 1870 or so, I guess. Let me just push one, one point, because there's a tension, I think, a little bit between um, particular inter particularistic interests spending a lot of money to get their thing done, right? You have, you have an, you're one corporation, and you want to spend money to get one particular policy done. And then donors, who just want one side to win, because we're in this polarized environment where all their eggs are in one side basket. And so their best interest for whatever issue they care about is just to have one side win. And um, there seems to be, we might have a value judgment differently depending on like what we, we, we don't care about one side just trying to further its interest of the side, but we do care about the particularistic interest. And this ties into what you're saying about, I think Justice Kennedy's view about, well, a corporation being outed for its articulating its particularistic interest, that outing is very positive because it brings light to this self-interested reason for wanting to engage in elections. Uh, but for the, the generic and partisan interest, do you have a different view about what's well, at stake there? That's the, the point that, that uh, Ray and David were making earlier about some of these studies that are showing that individual donors tend to be more polarized. The PACs that were referred to are the corporate interests that want some specific piece of legislation. So they give to both sides. Uh, because they're looking for an outcome. But the individuals want their side to win. They Very few individuals give to both parties. You, you tend to, to, to give to one or the other. So that, that may be the, the, do you, the, you're stuck on this spot. Do you want more individual involvement and, and potentially more polarized? Or do you want the, the PACs and the outcome being what drives it? We have three people left standing, so why don't we, if you don't mind, each asking your questions, and then we only have a f five more minutes, so if you each ask the question, then we'll deal with all of them together. Sure, so, so you mentioned uh, two types of disclosure. Uh, the disclosure forms that are filed with, uh, with the FEC, with the IRS, with, with agencies, um, and disclaimers, the things that would appear on an advertisement either in the newspaper or on television or the radio. Uh, how should we think sort of differentially about the, the benefits and the costs associated or, or concerns associated with those two different types of disclosure that are part of our current disclosure regime? Thank you. Thanks for a great panel. Uh, how do, I guess I'm wondering what the panel thinks about the failure of super donors in the last couple of cycles to have an apparent influence. So the Tom Steyer's and American Crossroads two, two years ago totally failed. They lost every election they were in, save one for Tom Steyer. Those the donors are sort of effectively known. You know who NextGen is. You know that it's all Tom Sire money, so you already have disclosure. Does that tell us anything about what the impact of disclosure might be more broadly? And also, Ray, I don't think you ever told us what the onion reform would be. We didn't hear about that. Oh, yeah. To make candidates anonymous. <laughs> <laughs> I, I was going to mention it, but I didn't want to get confused. <laughs> candidates, complete anonymity. We don't know who they are. <laughs> Protect their free speech without being punished. Uh, so on the, I feel I feel like I should respond because those are both my students. I could talk to them tomorrow um, in class. But um, I, I think that on the disclosure disclaimer front, the thing that's really useful about disclaimers is it goes after the the big donor. It, you know, the, it, it's right attached to the ad, so it's more legible sometimes to voters because um, they're not going to go look up the FEC numbers. Um, and it's also attached to the really big money, whereas um, disclosure rules sort of go. From you know, from the tiny little donor, where probably we probably don't need that information. It's not worth the cost to the big donors, 
where it's very useful to have that uh, information. So I think that's that's how I would draw the distinction. And disclaimers are harder to get through, which is why they get dropped every time there's any pressure on a reform bill. But they do they do have a nice feature, which is they're they're um, focused on the big money, and they may they may we still don't know provide some heuristic for voters. Regarding the other question, Tom Steyer, did he lose? I don't know. I mean, he got his message across nationally about climate change. And if I was a Democrat, I'd be thinking twice before in a primary before saying anything against positions he's taken. So, you know, it's a long-term investment for him. He said as much. Um, you know, I, I assume this guy's smart that, he, you know, he's made a lot of money. He knows his odds. And he, so he must be thinking about this long term. The other side of that, of course, is I, I, if I heard you right, you referred to American crossroads losing everything. That was, of course, in the last election in 2010. They won pretty much everything this time. Uh, so maybe the answer is you just you know keep at it. They would say you keep at it, you improve your game, you figure out what you did wrong, and you change it. Uh, and I would agree with Ray that coming out of this election, both Steyer and American Crossroads were winners in the sense that they both now are significant power players in the American political system, dictating policies, able to uh, at least get attention to the policies they, they care about. Uh, and that's true of the other major donors, uh, the major players here. The, what we're seeing, which is, I, I think, taking a while to sink in, is, is we're seeing that where we used to have people who donated to parties, you now have people who are creating their own political machines. Uh, American Crossroads, more particularly on the Republican side, the whole Coke machine, which is separate from the party. It supports Republican candidates, but it's not the party. Steyer on the, on the Democratic side, uh, some of the others. So we're moving into a world where you're going to have these major centers of political power. Uh, who, who are individuals by virtue of their money. Let me just close with a charge to the students in the room. Uh, for those of you who are in my election law and campaign strategy <laughs> class, you, uh, you know that I, I, referenced, I referenced earlier this semester a contest underway to come up with standards for making, uh, for determining whether a gerrymandering was uh, on political grounds ought to be unconstitutional. There's a, con there's a contest for this. Who can ever come up with an idea for, uh, for a good way to, to, to understand partisan gerrymandering, you can win money. And so I think after this conversation, I would say there is a lot of room for us to figure this out. Uh, and, so, and so if you have an idea about how we could do this right, a problem that needs to be solved, a solution to that problem, how we might test it, uh, there will be a lot of people paying attention and listening because uh, we, are, we, have, we know a lot, but we have a lot to learn as well. And this panel has really helped us, I think, get a long way in learning. And so I'd like to thank all the panelists. I thank all of you for coming. To those who would tear the world down, we will defeat you. This is our moment. This is our time. To those who seek peace and security, we support you. Yes, we can. And to all those who have wondered if America's beacon still burns as bright, tonight we prove once more that the true strength of our nation comes not from the might of our scale of our wealth, but from the enduring power of our ideals, democracy, liberty, opportunity, and unyielding hope. Let me tell you something you already know. The world ain't all sunshine and rainbow. It's a very mean and nasty place, and I don't care how tough you are, it will beat you to your knees and keep you there permanently for letting you.
For Stitcher Smart Radio Potable and more. Yes, we can. Public Access America. History in the making. Making history in the making. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. H-E-L-P. 